Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining us to break down your week in media and marketing is our deputy editor, Josie Tutty. Hello. Plus, coming up later, we will be speaking to Jasmine Badir, Managing Director of Spark 44, and Kevin Nichols, Brand and Marketing Director at Jaguar Land Rover Australia, about all things automotive. But first, the week's topics. Facebook's big new video push. Carl and Jackie O finally lose their breakfast crown. And Amazon pushes into Aussie Adland by hiring big gun Henry Tager. So, this week, Facebook Watch finally landed globally now i must admit um josie when i first uh, became aware of facebook watch i assumed it was a device that would be wrapped a one around one's wrist <laughs> rather than something one would watch that as a form a of video incorrect I'm it afraid. is incorrect um but i suppose the thing was i kind of figured that facebook were in the video business anyway that's how I feel. In in our reporting, we've been calling it a streaming service. It's been called a video on demand service. But when I looked at it today and what I figure from everything else that I've heard, it's essentially just a shiny new place for Facebook to put the videos that they already have. I was just looking at the section on my app. I mean, I'm just one person, but as far as I could see, the videos were exactly the same as what you'd see when you're just scrolling through your news feed. So. I suppose at the moment when you look at a Facebook video, what what it's it's quite good at is that sort of happenstance where you watch one video and then it gives the option of a next and a next mm-hmm. and a next when you you came to it out of the news feed in the first place so is that the kind of problem it's trying to solve to get people into youtube browsing mode essentially i think that is what they're trying to do um the the other thing that they launched um, alongside the watch is its new ad breaks program so I guess that's that's kind of really the new thing here I don't think watch it in itself would be much of a story at all but I think the real thing is that it's launched its ad breaks program so explain ad breaks um, so that will allow publishers who have videos of longer than three minutes to insert ads which have uh, f- ads that are up to 15 seconds long um, and they'll the publishers will get revenue from that they'll get 55% of the revenue 55% doesn't sound like a huge amount when the publisher's done all the work it doesn't and um digiday have been reporting on kind of roughly from publishers who have already been using the service in america roughly how much money they're actually getting back and it seems to be around somewhere around 300 us dollars per million views so <laughs> unless you're a video publisher who is just getting those massive viral videos you're probably not going to be making that much money from it yeah, I, I remember always saying that with the, uh, mum, the 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 Mumbo report on YouTube back in the day, our big plan that for that was it would monetize and maybe at least it would pay for the office Christmas party. I know? think I looked on it the other day, actually. Um, our YouTube channel, I think, has made $1,000 the whole time we've had it, which has been about nine or ten years. Yeah, but certainly at least eight <laughs> to nine years. So, um, well, maybe you'll buy the first round at this year's <laughs> office Christmas party. But then. we need to cash that in. <laughs> but Josie, my understanding was that in order to even use ad breaks, there has to be 30,000 people watching beyond one minute. So not to criticise the Mumbo report, I don't know how (laughs) many people used to watch it, but will that many people be eligible with that benchmark? 
in Australia anyway, I'd say the youth publishers, they're definitely getting those stats. They're definitely getting over 30,000 views. I'm not sure about for over one minute because obviously it just depends how long your video is and how long you're going to keep keep the interest in that video up. I think it is it is going to get them some money, but it's just realistically how much money are they really going to make? I don't think they're going to be able to sustain themselves entirely on the Facebook advertising money. Also, just on the the whole sort of announcement front, it was a bit strange because this one broke AFP, Agency France Press, (laughs) rather than the Australian Federal Police. Um, It it felt like some embargo got breached or something because it, it didn't seem like a very smooth announcement. Yeah, look, embargoes are always interesting anyway in that so often people use it as an excuse to hold back a story or or use it to sort of justify giving one publication advance notice. But it was quite clunky. It broke overnight and then we were told that AFP... This was on the Wednesday night. Yes, AFP, not the police, uh, had broken the embargo. And, and once that happened, it's sort of, it's in the public domain. So Facebook no longer gets to control when other people talk about it. So once it hit the sort of online news threads it was a bit of a free-for-all and everyone was scrambling to try and get the information that they needed while we're uh, on the subject of all things video and streaming another sort of confusing announcement this is confusing for me and and possibly it's just because i'm a simple person fox flicks foxtel's uh latest uh on demand offering uh, what what does this add to the armory Look, both you and I, Tim, are Foxtel customers and we both found ourselves a bit confused by this announcement. It seemed quite big when it first hit the inboxes uh, saying that Foxtel had launched a new streaming service, which initially in my mind I started thinking, okay, well, what does that mean for their streaming service Foxtel now? Uh, what does this mean for them competing against Stan and, and Netflix and what does it mean for their traditional IQ boxes? So we thought we thought it was huge, but then the more we looked into it, it, it appears to be an extended offering for their existing customers who have the movie package already. So it's not Foxtel being particularly innovative. It almost feels like it's Foxtel giving people access to things they already had access to, but just in a streaming sense. And, and as I understand, only streaming via their box anyway. So whether it's the IQ3 or IQ4 box appear to the only only places. So yeah, uh, which I thought I could stream things well, from anyway. That, that's why I, I still remain a bit confused. I don't personally have the, the movies package, but... I do have access to lots of on-demand things via my box, on-demand movies and on-demand shows. So I couldn't quite understand why they were dressing this up to be a huge deal. It, it almost positions Foxtel as behind what everyone else is already offering. Is this, because it feels like there were a lot of announcements from Foxtel at the moment. We've seen, um, they, they, they just announced the sort of the, 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 the 4K channel, um, which coincided with the new uh, Foxtel IQ4 coming out. Um, they're hoping to IPO the company later on. Um, at the moment, News Corp owns about two thirds and Telstra is still about one third. Is this just about trying to create some noise in the market, do you think? Well, I think Foxtel definitely suffers from being seen as a legacy media company. And even while some other traditional media companies have managed to somewhat turn around their narrative, I don't think Foxtel has managed to do that. People really don't like the box. 
they really don't like Foxtel's customer service. They think that Foxtel is behind. They no, think it's too I don't expensive. Know. Let me challenge you on the customer service. I mean, I, you know, I'm a critic of some things, but I, I always think the customer service isn't bad. In fact, at times it's really good. Oh, well, we've obviously had very different experiences. Look, I'm, I'm talking based on our comment thread and based on my personal experiences where we had outages for days and days and couldn't get anything done and nothing would happen. We couldn't even then get a discount on our bill. Uh, everything everything was a disaster. Oh, the secret on that is you ring up and say, I would like to cancel my subscription. We please. tried all that. I, you know, it's not my first rodeo, Tim. I did. <laughs> Once you talk to the retentions <laughs> department, things improve. Look, you're, you're all, there's no doubt you're better at this than me, but we did we did try all of those tricks and, and had bad experiences. But to, to circle back to your question about the the IPO, whether or not you agree with me on the customer service, they do have image issues. They do have problems with being seen as a, a legacy brand that has sort of always launches these things and people sort of perceive it as a bit, they're, they're doing things halfway and then they're trying something else and they're chopping and changing too often. So I think they are trying to be seen as a more modern company. They are trying to catch up with their competitors, but they've they've got a really long way to go and I'm no investment expert, but I'm not convinced that it's a great time to be IPOing. So maybe they are trying to transform their narrative and, and be seen as a bit more tech savvy. So still on the uh, topic of video streaming services and the ever more competitive and changing world. Um, Josie, this week we carried um, a guest post looking at the sort of relationship between HBO and Netflix. Yeah, so HBO's new boss has recently, sort of a month ago, I believe, came up and essentially said that they were planning on basically choosing quantity over quality which for a long time has been completely everything that HBO isn't HBO has been the company that makes Game of Thrones that makes these massive programs that cost a lot of lot of money take a lot lot of time but they're essentially now going to be flipping that script and saying that we're choosing quantity because we need to keep up with Netflix we need to get those minutes in Um, and I think this could be a start of a trend that we'll see you know across all streaming services Um, and I think it's going to be something that the TV networks are going to have to start thinking about too. Yeah that's interesting isn't it because if you think of it as a marketing position um, what do you have as a streaming service if it isn't your distinctive products you know stan when you know new season of better call saul comes out that's what they they, they beat the drum exactly on, and, and how realistically if you're making so much content how can you market all of those things effectively i really feel like it's best to just pick maybe five shows a handful that people really really love you know a stranger things a narcos and just market the hell out of that instead of making so many programs like you go on netflix now and there's so many shows that are originals but I've never even heard of them. Well, yeah, I mean, HBO has been known for being the quality television provider and it's often cited when people talk about, you know, the golden age of television that we've recently been in content-wise. There would be so many shows on Netflix that nobody watches or very, very, very few people watch. So I can't understand why HBO would chase that strategy when they have such a clear point of difference at the moment. Another thing that's interesting is at the moment, HBO is spending $2 billion on content, which sounds like a lot until you look at Netflix, who are spending $8 billion on their content. So they've got a lot of catching up to do if they are genuinely going to try and keep up with Netflix. Well, next, big changes in the radio market. 
So the new radio ratings were out on Tuesday. Uh, Viv, the big news was that Kyle and Jackie O have finally lost their Sydney FM breakfast crown. Is that significant? Well, they would argue that it's not. They will be very keen to let people know that it's a one-off, it's a blip, despite the fact that they came in second to their stablemates at WSFM in the form of Jonesy Jonesy and Amanda. But it, it definitely was significant in terms of how long they've been seen as the reigning king and queen of FM breakfast in in Sydney. They they previously have uh, come second once back in 2015 and once in 2017 they tied with Jonesy and Amanda. And but that was their very first survey when they moved across yes, from Today FM to KISS. To KISS. And they are just reigning supreme for, for so, so long and – to come second and to have the significant fall that they did. They fell 1.7 percentage points, so they're now below the 10% mark. A lot of people took joy in it, and so it's significant in that way in that people who don't like Kyle and Jackie O don't just sort of think they're a bit naff and a bit bad. They love to hate them, and then people that love them are their staunchest defenders. So... It's significant in that people reveled in the in the loss, uh, and and they're not they're not number one. So the next survey will be really telling. So it, how do you think Kyle took it? Well, you know, Kyle is a calm and, and reasonable man. Everybody knows that. Look, uh, the Daily Telegraph has been speculating that he's had a tantrum, and this is based on the fact that he didn't show up for the show. The yes, so the ratings came out on Tuesday, and on Wednesday and Thursday, Kyle was not on air. He was replaced by Bo Ryan, who, of course, until relatively recently was was over at Macquarie <laughs> Media, briefly hosting the sports <laughs> breakfast show there. Well, look, he'd definitely be getting more listeners on the Kyle and Jackie O show, even if they are in second. Uh, but Bo has been filling in and. The Telegraph reported that uh, Jackie has said that no one knows where Kyle is and no one's been able to reach him. Now, I've spoken to Australian Radio Network, which is the parent company of KISS FM, and they've said, look, all we can sort of say on the record is that Kyle is unwell and they fully expect him to be back on air soon. Look, I've, I found it a bit odd. I, I, you know, I try and flip around a bit. Um, so on, on on Thursday morning, I did tune in you know, just listen to an hour as I was driving in to try and get a sense of how they were handling Kyle's absence. And what was really odd was how little they were talking about it. You know, normally if someone's sick, they'll they'll throw it in, bloody blah, sick, back tomorrow or whatever it is. There was so little of that. It felt like there was something they weren't talking about. So, um, uh, so yeah, you know. That is the sense I that I get from ARN, that they're not, they're not saying a lot, uh, I guess that that's perfectly fair enough. If they don't want to disclose what's going on, they don't have to. But they were very keen to let me know that that he'll be back soon, uh, and they certainly weren't going to address rumours that it was anything to do with their their ratings fall. And of course, it, maybe he's Kyle, filming trial by Kyle. Well, maybe he's filming trial. I was about to <laughs> make secret. that point. I, I I I took the trouble, which I always do for Kyle when he's on television every few years, of getting the hold of the minute by minute ratings. So I did enjoy looking at trial by Kyle's those first few minutes he 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 took the audience he'd inherited from the bachelor and and halved it in a few uh, in a few minutes look kyle is very very successful 
on radio and and it pains me to say that as someone who's who's not a a fan of the Kyle and Jackie O show but I mean even though they're in seconds they've still got a 9.3% audience share he has not yet though proved himself successful on television although the rumors and and speculation and, and betting that I'm hearing is that trial by Kyle could well come out as a successful program from 10's pilot week so we might still see more Sanderlands on our screens well we can we 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 can't but hope. Um, now, uh, still on radio, we should because we uh, let let's try and unpack this. Why is it that whenever we write about the FM battle, it creates such annoyance from the two GB camp that we don't write more about two GB, who are the actual number one station in Sydney, and similarly three AW in Melbourne. Yes, so. 3AW in Melbourne, for example, has something like an 18.6% audience share and Alan Jones's Sydney Breakfast Show on 2GB is, is the clear market leader, no matter what Kyle and Jackie O are doing. I responded to a commenter this week about that and basically said, Alan Jones and 2GB have been reigning supreme for so long that a bit like when John Howard was Prime Minister for the better part of a decade, the news bulletins didn't open every single day with, and John Howard is still Prime Minister of Australia. But when we're in these tumultuous times now, they did report on, is it going to be Peter Dutton? Is it going to be ScoMo? Is it going to be Julie Bishop? What's happening with Malcolm Turnbull? You have to find something interesting and new to say with the volumes of data that comes in. And Kyle and Jackie O losing their FM crown according to my news judgment, was more interesting than Alan Jones is still popular. We have taken the the feedback on board and we do make sure that we make the AM wins and dominance more prominent in our story, but there's just not much more I can think of to say than they've done really well again. We talked briefly about Melbourne. Um, interestingly, in Melbourne, Kiss FM's breakfast show of Jace and PJ have sort of started to recover. So, they have been languishing around below the 5% audience share mark and they've jumped up to 5.9%. Also, interestingly, in Melbourne, Red Simons was let go from ABC Melbourne and when he exited at the end of 2017, he had a 13% share in breakfast. That's now down to 8.5% and it has been steadily steadily declining throughout the year. So I guess that's that's something to to keep an eye on. And that sort of feels like eight, the ABC's loss is commercial radio's gain because clearly that audience is going somewhere else. Yes, yeah, and it has been happening happening steadily since since Red's departure, but the uh the UK import Christian O'Connell uh who is on Gold FM in Melbourne hasn't hasn't benefited from that, which we thought we thought he might. We thought ABC Melbourne's loss might be Christian's gain. Yeah, somebody suggested to me that if you want, you know, some really intelligent conversation, one of the places was Red Simons, and uh, you you might get the same thing from Christian O'Connell. But look, it wasn't a disastrous fall. It was like a it was a percentage point or something. Yeah, so it? he fell one point three percentage points to seven point four percent. So it's still it's still a respectable number, but he just hasn't picked up that ABC audience uh, like we thought he might. Next, Amazon's big hire. So Henry Tager is one of Australian media's best-known players. Um, he went away for a while over to New York, then he came back, and now he's got a new job running Amazon Media's Australian operation. Um, 
If we don't necessarily think, first of all, as Amazon as a media brand, we think of it, well, perhaps I'm being old school, a place to buy books. Um, <laughs> but we, we, we should think of it as a media brand, really, shouldn't we? Well, I think part of the reason Australians in particular aren't totally on board with the Amazon thing is it's been a bit of a soft and bizarre launch here. There was so much hype and then they launched their retail operations in December last year and they started slowly rolling out their Prime offering, which in addition to sort of getting some preferential treatment, it's a streaming service as well. So it just didn't have a huge bang here. So the Amazon behemoth of on the global scale doesn't feel like it's been replicated here no, yet. It's definitely come slowly. I, I, I saw a piece this week saying they've, they've, they've just signed a contract on a Sydney warehouse the same size as the Melbourne warehouse. So that suggests there's a plan and they're gradually unrolling it perhaps? Yeah, look, it's definitely ramping up and Henry's appointment speaks to that. He's going to be managing director of the Amazon Media Group, which sells Amazon's ad assets. So he wants media dollars that otherwise would have gone to media owners. So after the threat of Google, Facebook, get ready because Amazon are coming for the traditional ad ad dollars too. Yeah, look, it is another disruptor in the traditional ad market. So Amazon Media Group describes itself as working with agencies and brands to increase sales, drive brand awareness and build relationships with their customers across display, mobile, video, programmatic and self-service solutions. But interestingly, uh, DigiDay has been reporting that increasingly overseas, Amazon Media Group has been going directly to brands. They're starting to cut out agencies. They want direct deals. So look, I don't know what Henry's plans are, but well, that's definitely something to be aware of. Well, that's interesting because of course he's from mainly an agency background. So arguably he's um, gamekeeper turned poacher. Well, he, he could very well be. I mean, and, and there's a lot of money in this. Amazon's ad revenue has grown by 132% year on year and is now worth around 2 billion US dollars. So I know our market is smaller, but I, I'm sure that they're going to want to replicate that here. And let's just talk about uh, Henry's uh, career history before he went off to the US. So before he went off to the US, Henry was a national trading director at Zenith Media, and he also spent time as CEO of Australia and president of APAC for Universal McCann. Which is part of the what's now IPG Media Brands. Yeah, and then look, he's had various roles within IPG Media Brands, which did ultimately result in his chief operating officer global gig which then evolved into ceo of ipg's global operations and executive chairman of the group as well look and that was in what's been basically an upwards career trajectory that was the one kind of failure is a harsh word but i guess that's what it was because it ended very abruptly and 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 he was you know he was he was moved on it didn't work out um, and I suppose that was then the challenge was coming back to Australia was what job would have been big enough for him after a global CEO role? Yeah, I mean, I've been watching really keenly, you know, what Henry will do next. He left the global role in May 2017. So he's been on gardening leave for, for quite a while. And I knew that the time was coming up that he would probably announce something soon. 
it's difficult to get a job as big as global CEO of IPG Media Brands and executive chairman back back mm. home here, here in little old Sydney. But Amazon feels like something that could have a lot of growth prospects for him. Well, look, he's you know he's he's very driven. He's very talented. He's clearly a very good leader of people. Very focused. It it feels like Amazon have made a very good hire. Yeah, look, and there would be opportunities to grow that. They're starting from a tiny base here in Australia. And if they're going to go after brands' dollars that would traditionally be going elsewhere, I'm sure that Henry will be well-placed to do that. And who knows, he he could have a, a global rise again. Well, next we'll talk automotive marketing. Hello, MembrellaCast listeners. I'm Damien Francis, Head of Event Content and Umbrella, who oversees all of the content curation across our range of events throughout the year. We're backstage at the Umbrella Automotive Marketing Summit at the Softdoll Wentworth in Sydney. It's uh, the second year we've run the summit, and there's a background hum of just over 400 delegates, including some great brands from the automotive industry. Uh, but two in particular that have caught our attention, especially since Umbrella 360, in fact, are the very well-known Jaguar Land Rover and perhaps the slightly less, uh, less well-known Spark 44. Here with me is Brand and Marketing Director of Jaguar Land Rover, Kevin Nichols, and Managing Director of Spark 44, Jasmine Badir. Thank you both for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you. Jasmine, we might start with you with Spark 44. Uh, if you can describe uh, the agency and the business partnership uh, between Spark 44 and Jaguar Land Rover, it's quite unique. Uh, give us a bit of a rundown on that. Oh, well, um, it's uh, it's quite an interesting one and it uh, takes a little bit of time for everyone to actually understand the model. So I will take my time to explain it. Um, it's uh, we, We're about, I think we're now going into year seven. It's a 50-50 um, joint venture model, which means um, the company is 50% owned by Jaguar Land Rover and 50% owned by ourselves. Um, it was founded back in 2011, actually, and it started um, with the ambition to uh, do things fundamentally different. So JLR um, was acquired by Tata and um, it was going through a um, change, as, as the company still is, and was looking for a new agency model and couldn't find it. So our founder back in the day, Steve Wolford, um, was a consultant on the business and basically after a year and a half said, um, you can't find it, um, so I'm just going to make it for you. I'm going to build it. And we started back then with 40 people. We're now over 1,000 and we have now um, actually now 19 offices in 17 countries. So it's quite uh, the journey that we've been on. And what's the reasoning behind that that massive outlay of, of agencies? You've, you've, you've spread quite uh, rapidly and you've got agencies right across the globe in completely different markets. Uh, what's the reasoning behind that? I think that's just in line with represent, representation and market size of uh, Jaguar Land Rover. So um, the ambition back in the day was to keep it small and do it different. To uh, We actually didn't want to become a massive network. But um, with um, with the success of the model, the scope 
has grown. Um, we basically added uh, scopes, uh, different channels to to our remit, and with that, we just had to grow. Um, plus, uh, back in the day, the model was founded based on the assumption that we would only look after Jaguar. Jaguar was the small brand, and um, that model worked sensationally for JLR. And all of a sudden, a decision was made to hand us the bigger brand, which was Land Rover, and we had to grow overnight by, I believe – Three, three to six hundred uh, people just to make it happen because um, JLR was already using, I think, in excess of 140 agencies around the world. So overnight, those agency re- relationships were ended and handed over to ourselves. Kevin, you're, of course, uh, at Jaguar Land Rover itself. Uh, can you explain to me what the efficiencies are in, in working this way and, and are there any challenges You know, when the agency is, is almost part of the brand, really? Um, yeah, the, uh, I mean, if efficiency was obviously one of the driving, um, reasons behind setting up a joint venture model. Um, so it's a completely open book, um, relationship. So we have a board of directors, which is made up of jointly between Spark and, uh, and Jaguar Land Rover. And, and efficiency was absolutely, Jasmine mentioned the number of agencies we were using and, and was there a more cost effective way? of producing work and the other side of that coin or part of that coin is um is effectiveness um and i think the other part one of the big benefits we see is is effectiveness around a um you know in a way it's that single point of contact um you know you're not needing to brief multiple agencies in all sorts of different areas there's there's far less of the um uh, of that sort of uh, coordination required by the client to to make sure that everybody's on the same page that you know the briefs albeit different for different channels are you know coming from the same place and all that kind of thing so there's a there's a lot of um i think hidden efficiency what it arguably comes out but um that's certainly a part now now spark don't work on every single aspect of the business we have specialist agencies in different areas but it's far fewer than i think you'd see in most uh most similarly sized car companies so so efficiency effectiveness um and um i think also uh, there is a there's there is a the relationship is different um in, in that um i was joking earlier you know i can't fire jasmine um uh, she claims I, I can, but apparently it's a torturous yes, process to, uh, to to get there, and probably vice versa. Um, so you should start now. Yeah, yes, right, that's right. Um, but it, what it means is, you know, it, it's it, it's it's like it's a colleague. It's a much more. It, it, I don't ever feel the agency is, you know, doing what we ask them to do because if they don't, then next year there's a pitch coming, and you know that sort of um, behaviour that clearly can exist um if if you don't have uh, strong agency so we have a very open and frank um discussion about things we don't always agree on things um we um you know we have we actually even have a code of conduct around how how we are going to conduct the relationship for those moments where you know yeah things get 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 tricky um but uh, fortunately we haven't had to invoke that just yet Jasmine, uh, which is <laughs> good, um, and um, and I think um, yeah. So the, you know that 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 does change the way you're interacting with your, with your agency. Um, the question I get asked a lot is, okay, well, but what if you don't like the ideas? What? About, how do you ensure that you get great creative work and so on and so forth? And I think 
Um, you know, for starters, it's, it's a, a two fantastic brands. I mean, they're global, iconic brands in a, in a frankly, an exciting industry, um, a challenged industry um, at the moment. And, um, uh, and I think that inevitably attracts people. Um, and, um, and, yeah, we're very, um, on both sides, very clear about um, the quality of the work and what, what we need and is it working and, and Spark 44 have a vested interest in ensuring that there's results at the end of the day. Um, they're, they're not just getting paid and away they go into the night saying it was great creative, it's something else. They're, you know, it's a, it's a joint venture. Um, so I think all of those things sort of add up. In the end, none of that matters if the people are wrong. Um, and if the relationship between the, um, the the people isn't working, um, and that's true of any agency model uh, anywhere in the world, and um, and so you, we can say all these things if you don't have the right people in place, um, the right leaders in the in the business, it, it it won't make any difference. But I think it allows us to get to a a point that we didn't, you know, we we, we don't have within a more traditional agency model. So let's talk about that when it goes wrong or when it goes right. Even it's never gone wrong. Uh, it's ne- that's what I've heard. That's a rumor I've heard. Um, it was started by you, though. Yes. When it does, uh, when there are challenges, let's say, who has the final say? Uh, how does the sort of relationship go in in terms of client speaking to agency or agency speaking to client, or is it just one big group who kind of has to nut this out now? It, it. I think it depends on what challenges we're talking about, or what do you mean by going wrong, right? So. I think because of the nature of our relationship, we don't have to sell things to our client that are wrong for the business in the first place. And I think because of that, we are coming to decisions um, a lot earlier and a lot faster because Kevin knows that whatever we're putting on the table is not because we need to um, hit certain revenue targets or um, want to do this because we want to win an award. We're doing it because the the work is right for the business. Um, So I think that changes the way we deal with each other. But at the end of the day, um, we're going into this uh, usually as a a partnership. So when something goes wrong, it's shared responsibility. And quite frankly, that should be the case in any kind agency relationship, but I think probably we have it um, a lot easier in, in, in our setup. We don't get involved in JLR's business, but JLR isn't getting involved in our business, and I think that's a that's a good way to to um, to operate this model. And, and you have to have a very um, frank, uh, or, or the ability to be very frank and open with each other around you know where things are not right, where you don't agree with. A particular, you know, you boil it down to campaigns or or ideas. You might say, "Well, actually, we don't agree with that, or we don't go, we don't support that route." Um, there, you know, there obviously there are official procedures, but they, you really only want to get to those when. The, and I'll, I would argue that's when the relationship has has broken down between the, the principal um, people. We we have a um, you know we have an account director. We have a. a in that sense, a, a traditional setup, um, but I think it's um, where we've disagreed on things in the past. It's usually around, you know, do we believe this is the best uh, outcome, or is this the best approach? And um, but I also think there's a, you know, there's um, there's a reality to, but it, it, it's kind of it's kind of, like, and I don't. I was trying to avoid using the word is like you know, different departments because. Um, but in some ways it is in that we both have ultimately got the same 
goal in mind. So a decision is going to get made, and once that decision is made, away you go. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, we haven't quite done the things that, um, that Jasmine and the team put forward to us, or sometimes they've, fought, you know, they've told us, no, no, they, they, they've kind of made us, you know, get brave and do the things that we, you know, they, they feel are right. Um, so I think it, it, I think it enables a, a degree of um, frankness in the in the, in the relationship that I, it, I've rarely seen in, in in other in other relation you know other agency relationships I've been involved in. Jasmine, you've effectively got one client. Sure, you know, Jaguar Land Rover produced completely different cars. It's almost like having two or even three, if you then say you know the Range Rover part of Land Rover, but. What's the plans with Spark 44? Uh, is there an urge uh, to bring in new clients to expand beyond the JLR relationship? Uh, I would say urge is the wrong word for it. Uh, I think for a long time we weren't ready and um, we also weren't contractually allowed to take on new business Um I think we have matured as a company now that we've got the setup around the world, that the relationship is working in the markets, that um, we know basically what we're doing and how the agency model works because that model didn't exist before. We are ready to take that model now to new clients, um, but it's not that we would be pitching in a traditional sense for um, anything or everything. And uh, clearly it wouldn't be, um, it would not be in the automotive space. Um, but uh, we were, we are currently looking at expanding the model and looking at um, uh, other brands that would be ready to um, pretty much rip up the textbook of how to uh, work with advertising agencies and start this all over again. The challenge, I guess, is the fact that you have so many offices uh, around the world uh, and the fact that, of course, you have one big case study in Jaguar Land Rover. How do you overcome that? Where's the business expansion led from? Um, and do clients potentially go, but hold on, you've only done work for Jaguar Land Rover? Uh, it's it's interesting. Um, the story or the narrative that we are telling on Jaguar Land Rover is one of um, – it's almost uh, – on Jaguar, it's almost rebirth. We've, we've led the brand – um, to success together with our partners at Jaguar Land Rover. And on Land Rover, we've consistently delivered really good work. Um, that's only in the remit of automotive, but it's in the remit of um, different channels. So from social to uh, CRM, uh, so one-on-one, one-to-one communication, a big above-the-line campaigns. So we, we can do um, all of that and we understand consumers. So we understand consumers on a global holistic uh, base like I would say no other network agency at the moment can. That is not because of our client. This is that is because of our unique setup. Because we all work um, towards one PNL, and because we work all towards one PNL, we don't compete with each other. We share insights, which me makes us, I feel, um, one of the only companies in the world that can give brands a real, truly holistic view of where it's at and where consumers are at. And that is very transferable to other brands. Maybe not to FMCG, and it's probably not an area that we would go into. But other considered purchases are definitely for us an area that we can add, I would say, tremendous value to brands. I'd say you're adding a fair bit of value to the Jaguar Land Rover brand in terms of the creative work that you've done to date uh, for an automotive manufacturer is is pretty special. Uh, You've had uh, campaigns starring Tom Hiddleston and, and Sir Ben Kingsley You've done really crazy challenges for for the cars, like driving down volcanoes and bits and pieces like that. Stuff we don't generally see 
in creativity in the automotive industry. So a, a question to both of you really, is the automotive industry in terms of its marketing campaigns creative enough? Um, I, I guess the answer to that is is the work doing the job it's designed to do. Um, so, you, you know, we tend to talk about creativity as you know, something different and something new. And quite frankly, if, if you know, the job of, of advertising creative is to praise David Ogilvie, it's just, just to sell. Um, and and if we're not if not doing that, it's not not working, and it's not great creative. And if we are, then arguably it is. Um, but I also think that um, the 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 approach that we have with with, with Spark it is um, much less siloed and much more holistic to to use that word that term, um, which allows us to think of very much in terms of the idea, and then what is the best channel and the best approach to get out is it paid media is it is it is it a pr stunt um social uh, campaign you know who knows and i do think that, that that um that they think in that very broad um that very broad way um I, I guess ultimately um you know you are measured by in, in any business about you know sales volumes and and profit uh, and those types of things but obviously from a marketing standpoint, we 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 track very closely around brand health and brand equity because that's the long term uh, value you mentioned, Range Rover. And if you think about Range Rover as a brand, you know, if I say Range Rover to you, you instantly have a, a have a a view of of what that stands for. And I think you know that's what sustains um, products and businesses over time, and that's that's where the value is. So so I think um, from a from a pure marketeer standpoint, that to me is the um it is critical so everything that we do and the agency does with us is it's got to be anchored in in is it pushing the brand forward um and is it is it driving um driving the result that we all seek um not always easy to measure but um but we obviously do more and more of that um and is it pushing the brand forward at the moment yeah i mean you know if I, if we look at our headline sales volume at the moment we've taken a bit of a dip um but so has everyone else. which is yeah exactly the, the so you know but the market itself is is down and particularly the premium premium market and we you know as an industry we're notoriously short term in our view you know it's like last month what happened last month if you're going to talk to a retailer it's what happened last week um and um and we're all sort of Looking, you know, we probably look in, in a in a sales sales and marketing organisation in, in a of a global company. We're looking, you know, a year ahead at, at best. Um, luckily, the rest of the organisation is focused on. You know, it takes five to seven years to bring a new product to market. So, um, so I think um, it. You know, what what's happened if you take Jaguar? It's it's it, we we had four years ago um, very low volumes and new products in the right territory within so uh, in the right the right space our first suv the f pace our second suv was launched earlier this year or yes earlier this year um so you start to put the right products um in the right place and then you start to communicate in a way that it that also is relevant to your audience and i think you start to see and we've seen that that growth it's, it's come off a bit this year clearly that's the work we're now doing is okay well, how do we get that trajectory back up to a positive level that is affected of course by the market um and um and the trends that go on there and i think we're seeing 
We're seeing some some headwinds and some volatility in the in the premium market, which will which will last a little bit. But uh, um, but ultimately, yeah, as a brand, we're definitely on a march. And if you look at brand um, health and, and and awareness and those types of measures, um, we've taken some very strong strides towards getting up to um, to the sort of areas that we 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 need to we need to be at for for, for sort of long term success. Our keynote to, at the Mumbrella Automotive Marketing Summit was Toyota's CMO, Wayne Gabriel, who spoke very much uh, about mobility and the future of the automotive industry. What he didn't necessarily touch on hugely was the fact that the Toyota lineup has changed substantially. I would say that the, the Jaguar and Land Rover lineup has also changed substantially. As, as you mentioned before, Kevin, the F-Pace and, and the I-Pace, but we've seen cars reimagined like the x-type and, and the xf uh the evoke of course from uh from range rover uh what has the reaction been to a refreshed and reimagined model lineup and do you think you found what the luxury consumer wants at the moment um well the, the reaction has been very positive if, if i look at you know the people i i guess my my um, the caveat to what I'm about to say is, you know, we want to, more people to be aware and familiar of the brand, but those that are um, are um, extremely positive about the products that we're bringing to market that are now relevant for them. Um, if we just produce um, large sedans, that's not, you know, that's a declining segment in this market. Uh, SUVs outsold passenger cars for the first time this year, and, and that trend is forecast to continue. And if I look into the future a little bit, um, in a matter of months away, we've got our first all-electric uh, vehicle, the I-Pace, um, which is a full battery electric vehicle. Um, and I think, you know, without giving too much away, I think that represents a lot of what the future of Jaguar is is looking like. And it's frankly, it's really exciting. New new propulsion technologies, um, you know, that frees up the design criteria, that frees up space inside the car. Um, it ticks a lot, lot of those boxes and, and, um, and the reaction we're getting from consumers to answer your previous question has been fantastic. We've had it on display at, um, shopping centers around, you know, the high, high traffic, sort of high end shopping centers around Melbourne, Brisbane and now Sydney. And, um, and I, I'm, it's, it's probably the most interest I've seen, um, of any launch that we've, we've done in the past, well, since I've been with the company sort of four, four and a half years in that. People are interested in the technology and um, they're interested in, in going down that electric route. And now there's a Jaguar proper premium brand, luxury brand, um, where they can they can get into that. And, um, uh, and the reaction has been fantastic. It's been particularly interesting for Jaguar, I guess, in terms of the design right. language and marketing of Jaguar's range of vehicles for decades was quite similar. And suddenly the brand has just stepped away into something fresh and different and, and new. And we have to. To, to to get to a younger target audience, we, we had to do um, things differently and step away from the traditional marketing approach. And, and, and I think and you, also, can, you can see that, right? Sorry to interrupt you. I, also, I think to recognize we're not going to outspend the competition. We can't just go and throw millions and millions of dollars into, into traditional advertising and expect to – um, a to sustain that, and B uh, to to um, to to, um, to suddenly change people's perceptions. You've got to, so as Jasmine said, doing things differently. Um, 
challenging people's perceptions of what the brand stands for um, is is critical. I'll end with one last question for the both of you. You've got a 30 seconds or so to, to answer this one, and it's going to be a big <laughs> one. I'm, I'm warning you. The Australian automotive market is at a tipping point, really. Uh, some very interesting consumer behavior uh, across the board. Where to in the next 12 to 24 months? What are we going to see, Kevin? Oh, I was hoping to put Jasmine on the spot. I could see Jasmine about to answer, so I just thought I'd uh, mix it up there. Oh, I think, I mean, I think the timeline is always the challenging one. Um, We talk about disruption, we talk about the change that's coming, and I think electrification is a a huge part of that, Um, alternative fuels in general. Um, I think the timeline, um, and when I say electrification, of course, the autonomous vehicle is a big, big topic of of discussion. I think all of those things are coming. Um, You know, they're probably not a year away, Uh, they're probably five five years um it'll depend also on the inf- infrastructure availability um and i think you'll continue to see the evolution of the buying uh process that, that consumers go through and how they want to uh, interact with brands um i think that's that's a almost a continual continual change but i'll let jasmine I was going to be incredible. I was going to be incredibly controversial and say I don't think you're going to see a lot of uh, change because the time frame is way too short. We see we see a lot of momentum um, in in Europe, in the US, where brands are trialing different things. But because this is not really well supported by the Australian government, you will see very very slow change. You will just see a lot of people uh, panicking quite a lot and talking about it. <laughs> Well, Jasmine from Spark 44 and Kevin from Jaguar Land Rover, thank you so much for joining us on the Mumbrella Cast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And just before we go, a bit of housekeeping first. Thank you for supporting the Mumbrella Cast since we brought it back. If you haven't had a chance to do so yet, we'd love it if you could rate it or even write a review on iTunes or whatever podcast catching device you happen to use that will help other people find it and second if you're interested in the world of b2b marketing don't forget the mumbrella b2b marketing summit on wednesday the 5th of september google mumbrella b2b marketing summit to find out more and that is all for this week thank you josie thank you tim thank you vivian thank you Toodle-pip. Toodle-pip.